Welcome to episode one of the Thanks for the Memories podcast. I am your host, Raul, and the tune you just heard is a song from the Broadway play, Three's a Crowd. Its title is Something to Remember You By and was recorded by the late, great Dinah Shore in 1942, which is also the year that my guest was born. From Detroit, Michigan, I am very happy to welcome Miss Patricia Leigh Dorsey. Patricia, welcome to the show. It's an honor to be with you today. It's an honor to have you on the show. Thank you. (laughs) So to give you a quick background about why I started this podcast and why I picked you, Patricia, to be my first guest, we previously spoke about how my grandparents passed away four months apart from each other in 2017. And while I remember some of their stories, especially those of my grandpa's time in World War II, I regret that I never captured their story and thought it would be a great idea to speak with others who have a fantastic life story and have advice to give the younger generation. Why I picked you to be my first guest? Well, I learned about you through a friend of mine as he was going to the Detroit Techno Music Festival a couple years back. And he posted a picture of himself along with this uh, woman um, named Grandma Techno, who was in a mobility scooter dancing away with the other festival goers at this techno party. And I thought, who is this person? And so I looked you up, found you on Instagram, started following you, started seeing the pictures you were posting, and you have an amazing tale to tell. And I thought you would be the perfect first guest as you have an amazing life story to tell. I could tell that you have advice to give others and you'd be a perfect foundation going forward as to who I would like to interview in this podcast. I'm honored, really. Uh, it is a long life, and I, I, you know, I'm 80 years old now, mm-hmm. and it's kind of hard for me to believe, actually. Okay, let's talk about your early years, where you were born, where did you grow up, uh, some early childhood memories that you have as well. Okay, I was born in Washington, D.C. Um, my dad was high up with the government, and um, well, in 1942, he wasn't yet, but he was part of military intelligence mm-hmm. in, in the war. And, um, you know, I mean, of course, I don't remember, I don't remember World War II, but Mm -hmm. I was alive because I think, well, I was born in 42. It ended in 1945 for the U.S. Uh Um, So I was born in Washington, D.C. at the old um, Army-Navy hospital that I think, I don't know if it exists anymore. I'm not sure it does. But I grew up in a town that was just like seven miles outside of D.C. called Falls Church, Virginia, which still exists. And, um, you know, I, I mean, my, my growing up time, I think, was, was pretty much like most people's at that time. Um, you know, I went, to, uh, I went to an elementary school that we didn't have a junior high, so I went straight from elementary school from eighth grade to ninth grade and went to high school. Mm-hmm. Um, our summers were rather special, though, because we did go to a summer cottage 
every summer from the time I was five until I was 20. Oh, wow. And that was on Chesapeake Bay. Yeah, it, it was amazing, and it was a community. There were seven cottages, and pretty much the same families were there every summer. So we all grew up together. And that was really my major community was our beach community, which was extended family, it felt like. Can you describe the house to me? Did it have a nice view of the lake? Well, the house was just a really beat up cottage uh-huh. and very old and but it did. We were we were closest of all of the ones on this little property. There wasn't much property, but uh, we were closest to the water and so, you know, my probably my fondest memories of the the beach and growing up was lying out on the chase lounge on our big front uh, porch mm-hmm. and and that the water was kind of pretty much in front of me and reading library books. I loved to read the bookmobile would come once every two weeks and she would only let me take out eight books at a time, which was never enough for me. Uh-huh. So, yeah, I was always a reader. And, I mean, you know, they're just things like this was back when we first started going there. Um, The refrigerator was an icebox. It literally had ice. And I remember the ice man coming. Yeah. You had an ice man delivering ice? We did. Like the first year or two, we had, uh, you know, that would have been 1947. Mm-hmm. Yep. We had an Iceman for all of the cottages. And I remember we kids would all hang around him because he'd scrape off um, parts of the ice to give us that we could suck on. So you know, <laughs> that was something I loved to do. I mean, just remember, too, that we were within a mile of a general store. Uh-huh. Um, and I would walk barefoot to this general store to get the knee-high orange drink that I love. <laughs> And I would, my feet, we never wore shoes in the summer except when we went to church on Sunday. Mm-hmm. But my feet were so um, calloused by then that I literally could pop hot um, asphalt bubbles with my feet. <laughs> I loved doing that. Wow. Wow. Yeah. So, you know, thinking about things like that. And then it was back in the days where. The uh, the drinks were in those big metal containers that were, you know, Coca-Cola things. Mm-hmm. And you'd dip your hand into this icy water to keep trying to get the one you wanted. So, you know, there were just a lot of things that at the time seemed normal. Of course, looking back, it was it was pretty amazing. Do you remember how much you paid for your drink? I think it was $5. Five cents, I mean. Five cents? There's barely anything you could buy nowadays for five cents. Yeah, I mean, all kinds of things like that were so different in terms of, of what things would cost. Yeah. Did you have any brothers or sisters growing up, or were you an only child? Nope. I'm the middle of three girls. Oh, okay. So I have an older sister who is two years older than I and a younger sister who's three years younger. I bet you all couldn't wait until the end of school so you could head over to your summer vacation home. Well, totally. I mean, the day after school ended, we would get in the car and drive there. And my father was still working, and he was working in Washington, which was about an hour, hour and a half drive from the beach. But he would commute every day, as would all of the men who lived there. They all were either government people or military. And so they would all drive, um, you know, from the beach every day to and from. Uh, okay, so, okay. Yeah. 
How was Washington, D.C. We back then? Uh, Washington, D.C. was, well, of course, at the time, I didn't know that there, I mean, no, I didn't think anything about it. To be honest, Washington, D.C., inside the the inside part of the city, um, hasn't changed a lot. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, you know, because it was it was still the, um, you know, the monuments, it was the, the museums, it was the, the big buildings that were all made out of marble and things, all of, kind of very similar to what you see in the pictures now. Yeah, I've been to Washington, D.C. a couple times, and I'm actually going again in a month or so. I love the history of D.C. and all the sites you can visit. They'll be doing spring then. We don't, here in Michigan, we don't really do spring in March, but you would be doing spring in Washington at that time. Now, your dad worked for the military or the government? Well, he started with the military, but then he he was um extremely intelligent fellow. He had his um, master's in business from Harvard, and, you know, he, my both my mother and my father had their master's degrees. My mother's was in social work. My dad's was in business. But um, he then was part of the um, the founding of the CIA, actually. Wow. Uh, yeah, I know he was young. He was very young, but he's extremely intelligent and a very hard worker. So he ended up kind of rising to the top and um, not of the CIA as much as the government. Um, he was, uh, during President Truman's, time, mm-hmm. my dad became the executive secretary of the National Security Council. Wow. So he would brief, he'd brief the president every day on <laughs> national security things. Yeah. Wow. Of course, as a kid, you know, we didn't think too much about it. But all, what I do know is he could never tell us anything. Right. I mean, when you'd ask dad, how was your day? It was, you know, fine. I mean, he, he couldn't give any details of anything. Have you seen the movie Beautiful Mind? Yes. Did your dad also wear like a fedora hat with suits every day? Dad always wore a fedora hat. That was one of his trademarks. He he just always did. He loved to sail. We had a sailboat. Mm -hmm. And with three girls and my mother, um, he named the sailboat harem. We were his harem. (laughs) And so, you know, that we would go off on a cruise every two uh, for two weeks mm-hmm. every summer, which was one of my favorite times. And we would all sleep on the boat. And yeah, it was, it was with our paper dolls and it was very special. Did you fish at all or was it more of just picking in the We didn't do fishing, but we did crabbing Ooh, wow. uh, on the Chesapeake Bay. You, 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 you catch bluefin crabs really? and you eat the crabs. Ooh. Oh yeah. Nice and fresh. That was what our thing was. Yep. We were always catching crabs. And, and eating them, and mother would cook them, although I certainly remember sometimes they would, uh, like we would, we would have in a big, them in a big wicker pail, and we'd bring them in, and sometimes they'd crawl out, and we were all barefoot, including mom, and, you know, sometimes they would come and bite us on the, the toes, and, <laughs> you know, so you kind of had to be careful when mother was going to be cooking. Now, you briefly mentioned about your mom's education. Uh, could you dive a little bit deeper into that? Absolutely. Yeah, my mother was remarkable. She was born and raised in North Carolina and in a small town called Shelby, which is right outside of Charlotte, um, until she was 12. And both of her parents were, they, they did not speak and they did not hear. 
And so um, mother's first language was sign language. Wow. And she had two older brothers who spoke. And so they were the ones who taught her to speak. Um, and so, you know, she was always bilingual uh-huh. in terms of, of sign and, and speaking. But she put herself through college. Her, her grandfather had said that he would put the, her two brothers through college, but he would not put her through college because in, in those days, she was born in 1913. And in those days, he, he did not think it was important for a woman to get college. But mother did, and so she worked at the campus um, snack place Uh to put herself through school. So she put herself through school. She decided that she wanted to become a social worker, and the counselor there recommended that she go to Smith College School for Social Work, which is still probably one of the finest um, graduate schools for social work. Smith College in Northampton, Massachusetts. Mother had never been out of the state of North Carolina, but she was accepted anyway. They they just thought, I guess they talked to her on the telephone and and looked at her grades and all of that. But anyway, she was accepted. So she took a boat from uh, Wilmington, uh, North Carolina, up the ocean to uh, to Mich- uh, to Massachusetts by herself. Had never been out of the state, and then I think she took a bus into Northampton, which was maybe a couple of hours from there. Anyway, she was remarkable. So that was that was who I was following. It sounded like your mom had a lot of grit and determination to push through, even though she was trying to be held back by her grandfather to continue going to college and earning, I think you said a master's degree, correct, in social work? She did. She got a master's in social work, yeah. And I followed her then. I did a lot of following of my mom and I went to the same she went to a woman's college in North in um, Raleigh North Carolina called Meredith College uh-huh. and both my sisters all three of us went to my mother's college really and then, yeah we all three did so I, I mean I just sort of followed along I it's like I, I'm kind of a self-starter now but I wasn't then uh-huh. and so I sort of followed along and and did what the others had done, and and then I I did some uh, summer work at a daycare, and there was I remember there was a little girl who was eight years old who came from a divorced family, which was unusual at that time, and uh, she had a lot of problems, emotional problems, and I remember spending a lot of time with her and deciding that I wanted to go into social work, oh, and okay. so I ended up going to SNAP as well. And, uh, you know, got my master's there. Congratulations. I always say a degree is something that no one can take away from you. Oh, thanks. thanks. (laughs) A long time ago. That was 1966. What was your favorite subject in school? Yeah. What was my favorite? Certainly not math. I was terrible with numbers. (laughs) Um, Yeah, terrible. English. English, English, definitely. Okay. I always liked to write and um, words. Yeah. English was by far my favorite. You grew up in the 50s and 60s when America was changing quite a bit. Did you see any racial tensions or segregation during this time? I did, but I don't know that I was as conscious of it as I became later. Right. Um, yeah, it's, I do remember 1955 when the Brown um, 
versus education changed so that schools had legally had to be integrated. And I remember I went to, at that time, I was going to a Camp Fire Girl uh, camp mm-hmm. uh, in the summers. And I remember at that time, the Camp Fire Girl camp became integrated. Oh. But our schools were not integrated. And I can remember my dad was on the school board, and I would ask him about that. And he would say, well, there aren't many people of color, or they, they called, I'm not going to, they didn't call them the N-word or anything like that, but mm-hmm. I think it was called colored people uh-huh. that time. But they don't live in Falls Church. However, I found out, like, oh, I don't know, within the last 10 years, that there were families of color in Falls Church, mm-hmm. and they were bused on our old buses. They were bused to a school that was like, God, 40 miles away. Wow. I know. It's horrible. It is. I, I, you know, when I heard all of this, it was just appalling. And they were using our old buses, and, you know, it just, all of it was just terrible. And that, that was going on silently. Mm-hmm. I mean, down farther south, when I was in college in the early 60s in North Carolina, the sit-ins were just happening mm-hmm. in Raleigh, North Carolina. I certainly wish I had been conscious and aware as I am now. Mm-hmm. I certainly would have been part of those sit-ins, but I wasn't. I mean, I was, it wasn't that I was totally clueless, but I just, I didn't see that as something I should be doing. Right. I, I, I've always regretted that, to be honest. My mom would tell me similar stories from her days in school here in Southern California and how the schools would send non-white students in the old beat-up bus as well. I can't believe it's 60, 70 years later, and we're still uh, seeing this racial tension and segregation happening. It's just sickening. Absolutely, and the segregation. Mm -hmm. It is true still. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, uh, we live in a suburban part of Detroit Mm -hmm. that is not totally but predominantly white, uh-huh. you know, and that, that's the, honestly, that I'll, I'll never get over being upset about that yeah. and kind of doing what I can, but it's, yeah, it's tough thing. We have a long way to go. We is do. all I have to say. We definitely we have do. a long way to go. We, we have gotten, things have gotten better, but we still have much, much more to go. Completely agree. Mm-hmm. Did your family own a TV or radio? I remember the day we got our first TV. It was 1947. We had the first TV in the neighborhood. Of course, it was this little tiny black and white TV, Mm -hmm. and it had sticking out in the front like a mammoth magnifying glass kind of thing, Mm -hmm. so that the picture would look a little bigger. Really? Yes. Oh no! I mean, it's. I guess. I don't know what it was called, but it stuck out from the front. It didn't come with the TV. You had to buy it separately. Okay. But it was this odd, almost like if you've ever seen what they call Coke bottle glasses yeah. in the old days. Yeah. Of, right. uh, yeah, you know what I mean? How those mm-hmm. looked? Well, that's how the TV looked. It was just, um, anyway, but all the kids in the neighborhood would come to my house for howdy duty and um, at five o'clock every afternoon. I mean, I remember that so perfectly. So yeah. Was howdy duty your favorite TV show? I I guess when I was a kid. Yeah. But the first thing I remember watching when the TV came, 
it was so uh, really kind of an unusual thing that I had a stomachache. Well, I couldn't go to school that day. Uh-huh. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> you know, the day it was going to be delivered. And I watched golf. That was the first thing I ever saw on TV. Before the TV, though, that we would sit around the big radio. We had a big, you know, floor size radio mm-hmm. in the living room where we would listen to Herbert McGee Molly and, you know, just all the different Jack Benny and all of those different radio programs. Mm-hmm. So that was what we would do as a family. Did you have a nickname growing up? Patsy. Okay, now fast forwarding to your teenage years, did you go to prom? Prom? Yes, I do. I do remember that. Yes, I did. I did go to prom, and I remember our senior prom actually was like an all-night thing that one of our friends had um, like kind of a cocktail party sort of thing Mm -hmm. first, and then we went to the prom, and then someone else who had a pool in his backyard had an all-night party that we then, you know, were up for the the breakfast for that. You stayed up until sunrise? Yeah, that, yeah and that was the prom. But, you know, I mean, that was after the dance prom part. Okay. But that was the only time my parents were always extremely, um, oh, I would say strict about my coming in early. But by then, you know, we could kind of, that, that was the first time we were free. Did you go with someone? I did. Um, I went with Bill Henderson. <laughs> That's bizarre. Anyway, <laughs> was he a boyfriend? No, he wasn't. He was a very cool guy, though. Okay, but he wasn't my boyfriend. But actually, then he ended up going to Duke University, which was only a, like I don't know, maybe thirty minutes or something from Meredith College. So I dated him some when when he was at Duke and I was at Meredith. Um, but he was he was never my boyfriend. Do you remember any popular songs that were played at your prom? Oh, yeah, I can't give you. Oh, it's disgusting. I mean, this is part of the problem of being older. You don't have a delete button. Mm-hmm. I need a delete button for my brain. <laughs> Please don't my delete anything. Please still, don't delete anything. Oh, my God. You can't. I wish I could. I've got these lyrics for Peggy Sue mm-hmm. and, you know, just all of these 50s. Uh, songs that I knew the words to all of them, and uh, they still sit in there. If you knew Peggy Sue, then you know why I feel blue without Peggy. My Peggy Sue. Oh, well, I love you, Kelly. I love you, Peggy Sue. Peggy Sue. Peggy Sue. What was your first job? My first job. My first job would have been summer job, and this is an interesting thing. My first job would have been when I was 16, and my summer job was at the the national headquarters of the FBI. (laughs) I'm sorry, I thought you said the FBI? For the summer. Summer job. Yep. And because my dad worked for the government, uh-huh. those folks could get their children to have summer jobs in the government. My mind is blown right now. Seriously. Your first job was with the FBI. My first job was making pizzas at Little Caesars. The FBI? 
what the FBI was crazy too because it was J. Edgar Hoover mm-hmm. who was absolutely insane, mm-hmm. and he ran the place like a, a feudal fiefdom. It was crazy. Did you have and to do so like a background check? Four computers. Uh-huh. Oh, tons of background checks, but it was the way he ran the place when you were there. I mean, for instance, you were not allowed to go to the bathroom for a half hour before you were starting. After the, the first half hour of your work day or the last half hour, because he was convinced that you would be bringing materials in that mm. you would put inside your underwear. Uh, and he yeah. was very paranoid. And w- th- this was before computers. Mm-hmm. And so we were in what was called the uh, the big file room, which was mammoth, the size of a warehouse and huge. And so we, a lot of us were high school kids, and we would say, party in the A's. So everything was alphabetical, so there would be a party in the A's uh-huh. because it was farthest away from the door where the uh-huh. supervisor would be. What were your duties? Uh, we were just filing, okay. filing these index cards. Index cards. And we were also looking up people. We were looking up people to see if they had any dirt on them, which they did because he was so paranoid. How did the FBI get information on people back then without the use of computers? Not well, they they just had all these people out there tracking them. Right. You know, and and I don't know exactly how, but I know that we had we were filing these little index cards mm-hmm. of people like Rock Hudson and, you know, people like that that he would just get all this stuff on. That that wasn't true. Uh-huh. A lot of it. A lot of it wasn't true because um, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was in there. Really? And he had untrue lie, you know, lies about these people because he was so paranoid. So, yeah, it was it was a very strange place. So I worked there for two summers, mm-hmm. and then I worked one summer at the CIA, and that was when they were converting to, um, to computers. Uh-huh. And so I was helping to convert microfilm things to computers. Interesting. And then my final place that I worked was a, um, a day camp. There are moments in life when something significant happens and we can recall the date, time, uh, location where we were when we heard the news. Uh, for instance, I recall getting on the freeway, um, the morning of September 11th and I was listening to a local radio show named Kevin and Bean here in Southern California and it was announced that the World Trade Centers had been attacked. Well, the oh, first thing I remember was when President Kennedy was shot. That was going to be my question. Do you remember where you that were when? That was it. The, oh, yeah, I can, I can remember exactly when and where and how I found out. Mm-hmm. And it was huge for everybody. My parents came down. To, I was at college. My sister was there, too. My parents came down to be with us. I mean, it was, it was so traumatic. It was so traumatic for, for everybody. I would imagine many people in the streets crying and trying to process what happened. We were, exactly, all of us were. Nothing like that had happened, mm-hmm. you know, um, that we were aware of anywhere. Nothing right. like that had happened. And that was really the first moment that I remember where we had that kind of community awareness of an, of an event and that everybody pretty much felt the same about it. And that was when we were just devastated by it. You said you graduated with your master's in 1966. Correct. Now, what else happened in 1966? Well, that's when Eddie and I got married. How did you two meet? I graduated 
I got my master's, I think it would have been the beginning of September, and Ed and I got married in October. I had met him on my second year of field placement. I w- the program at Smith was two and a half years long, mm-hmm. straight through. We were up on campus for three summers of academic classes, and then the two winters in between, we were on field placements. My first field placement, I was in Cleveland at a family service agency. And when you were on field placement, you would be closely supervised by one of the um, supervisors at wherever, whatever facility you were working at. Mm-hmm. And uh, you would be there from September until May, and then you'd go back to campus. So I was, my second field placement was at Lafayette Clinic here in Detroit, which is, doesn't exist anymore, but it was an in and outpatient psychiatric clinic okay. down on the Chrysler Freeway right downtown. How long did you two date before you were married? Oh, did we date? You know, we did not enough. <laughs> <laughs> we, didn't, we really didn't know each other very well. Um, the first year we got to know each other, but it was, uh, we didn't. Um, yeah, we met uh, at the end of January at a dinner party that a psychiatric um, resident was mm-hmm. giving at her house. And, um, and we started dating then, and then Eddie was 35, and I was 23. Okay. So there was quite an age difference. Mm-hmm. He had never been married and was scared, to be honest. And so when we started talking about marriage, he was okay for a while, but then he got spooked. And so he kind of broke up with me for a while then. And, um, and then two months later, I was, he called me again out of the blue. And the next week I was in a bad car crash where I, you know, got my face all messed up and I was at Ford hospital for like 10 days. Oh my gosh. And my, yeah, my mother came and my supervisor from Lafayette clinic. And I said to them, well, should I tell Ed? Cause he had called me to, to like tell him about this and, and they, I said, absolutely. So I did, and he walked in the door. Aww. You know, the rest was history. You know, we just, then we were very close, but then I was going right back to Smith to take the academics. So we really didn't know each other very well. But I, I did know, like, after the first date, I can see myself in my apartment closing the door. And I hadn't even kissed me goodnight, but closing the door and leaning back and saying to myself, I'm going to marry that man. <laughs> and it was just this bizarre knowing. Right. And so, you know, there was, there was something there. Um, but as I say, we had a lot to learn. Does he feel the same? Um, yes, I think, you know, you mean in relation to, um, did he know you were the one? I don't as well? know that, oh, I don't know. I think he was scared. <laughs> I mean, he was 30, by the time we married, he was 36, I was 24, uh-huh. he'd never been married. Um, I don't think he'd ever even been engaged. Mm-hmm. So he was, he was very young for his age, shall we say. And so, yeah, I, I think it just, I don't know, I think maybe he began, I think his sister-in-law said to him, if you don't catch this one, you're a fool. So <laughs> I, I think Eddie decided to go ahead and catch this one. Growing up in the 60s and 70s, did you get involved with the hippie movement at all? I tried to. I just wasn't very good at it. Okay. I tried to dress like them and, you know, and put on makeup like them and stuff. 
But I can't say that I did. I'll tell you when I became a hippie, though, mm. was when I was in my 60s. Your 60s? That, yeah, so it took me that long to sort of get into my hippie, my true <laughs> hippie days. Yeah, I, you know, and it was at that time that I was living half the year in San Francisco, mm-hmm. and Eddie was staying here, and, and I'd come back. And, I mean, we, we weren't, I didn't consider us separated, mm-hmm. but I just had to be on my own for a while. Okay. And so I was. And, you know, but then I was pretty wild and, and why, not wild in terms, I was never dating anybody or anything like that, but in terms of the way I looked like I had a walker that I called Windchime Walker because mm-hmm. I totally covered her with, um, oh, all kinds of craft papers mm-hmm. and wind chimes and, and crystals. And I mean, like I'm, I'm walking with my walker down Haight Asbury in San Francisco mm-hmm. and this fellow who was all tattooed and every which thing, he looked at me and he says, Killer Walker. <laughs> That's what he said? So, yeah, he did. Uh-huh. Absolutely, as I went by. Yep. And it was. It was a Killer Walker. Uh-huh. So, yeah, I, I began to get wilder and wilder the older I got. During this time, did you attend any protests? Yeah, and that wasn't until I was older. Um, and I never used drugs either. So yeah. I think that may have been back when the hippie era was on. Um, marijuana, at least marijuana, some LSD and all of that was very much a part of the scene. Mm-hmm. And I just never was into any of that. So, you know, I just didn't see myself in that world. Um, the activism didn't come until the late 1980s. And I, I just started waking up to things mm-hmm. after the Iraq war. No, it wasn't. It was before. No, yeah. Anyway, around the time of Bush's father's Iraq war, which 1991, mm-hmm. uh, I just had a total awakening. Um, they talk about being woke. Mm-hmm. Well, I I became woke totally, and everything changed for me. So that I then for decades. Um, was really a full-time activist on the street, you know, in New York and Washington and I don't know, wherever. I, I even went to visit a, a Muslim friend who had been um, arrested after 9-11. Really? I visited him and his family in Lebanon. And, wow. and, and you know, he asked me to speak to uh, an organization at the American University in Beirut mm-hmm. um, about anti-war, because uh, this was during the Iraq War, mm-hmm. about anti-war um, feelings in, in the U.S. Mm-hmm. So I spoke as an anti-war activist in, in Lebanon. It takes a lot of guts to go to another country and talk about the anti-war movement here in the U.S. Well, I think guts is something I was born with. <laughs> And I think I got it from my mother. Mm-hmm. You know, if I if you remember her story, I I, do. I think she was born with guts. Mm-hmm. And I think it was in my DNA. Can you talk about your 19-day Solidarity Peace protest at the White House? Well, after I had gone to Lebanon and became so close to the people there, I stayed with my Muslim family. I called them my second family. Mm-hmm. Rabia, Rabia Haddad, the man, died of COVID um, last year. Oh, so, no. you know, that's... A great sadness, but we're we're very close, and I was very close to Salema and their four kids, and um, yet so I was very close to Lebanon, and then 
Israel started, well, they had been doing this, but they started a full-out war on Lebanon. And I think that maybe 30 Israelis were killed, and I forget how many, it may have been 3,000 Lebanese. I mean, it was totally unbalanced in terms of of what was happening. Mm -hmm. And so I just drove to Washington, D.C. by myself with my sign, and the front of it, it said, um, let's see, it said, Israel out of Lebanon, and on the back it said, who suffers in war? Mm-hmm. And it was a picture of my family in, in Lebanon. And, and yeah, I did a, a solitary demonstration in front of the White House and in front of Congress, mm-hmm. uh, the Congress offices, for 19 days. And it was, it was a heat wave. It was 100 degrees every day. Oh my. And I was kind of semi-fasting at the same time. Mm-hmm. I would have... Uh, juice in the morning, but I wouldn't eat again until after I was done with, you know, my my protesting, which was probably around six o'clock in the evening. Yeah. Did people come up to you with words of encouragement? Um, there were those, but then there were those who would absolutely curse me out. Are you serious? Yeah, because in, in front of Washington, you know, in front of the White House, there were also a lot of Israelis on tour, mm-hmm. and so you know it's. It was it was a very challenging time. What I learned was how to be a nonviolent mm-hmm. uh, protester, and so I would like I was figured I was saying what I needed to say with my sign, mm-hmm. and so I would just let people yell at me or scream or curse or whatever they needed to do, and try to find some place where we could meet, mm-hmm. and really where we would always meet is that we cared about the people we loved right. and we wanted them to be safe. Right, and th- so I could bring that up, but our idea of how to keep them safe mm-hmm. was very different because their idea was to bomb the hell out of them, and my idea was to stop the bombing. Right, right. It was very powerful, and I stopped after 19 days because the last time I was surrounded by some Israeli settlers uh-huh. and was really under threat, oh, and wow. um, I could see that I really was in danger, so uh-huh. I thought, I, I need to go home because okay. I've done enough. Well, you did a lot more than 99% of the others in a similar spot. You know, I wasn't doing it for anybody. I was doing it for my family in Lebanon. Right, exactly. Because they had had to escape. Uh, Rabia was out of the country. Mm-hmm. Salema had to take the children and, and escape into Syria um, by herself, which was really horrendous. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I was doing it for them. Well, thank you for what you did there. Oh, thank you. Appreciate your response. I see your creativity started leaning towards the arts and photography. And I thought I read that you're an award-winning painter. Can you, can you go into that a little bit? Well, yeah, I mean, all of those, that all came. Actually, I was doing volunteer work. This was in the early 70s. Mm-hmm. I was doing volunteer work at the old inner city Detroit um, hospital that used to be in Greektown. Anyway, and I was with the pediatric patients and... Um, I, you know, we would play in the playroom with the kids mm-hmm. and with magic markers. We would make our little drawings. I'd bring them home. We'd put them on the refrigerator the way you do with those things. But Eddie saw some talent that I didn't know I had. Um, and, and so he gave me art supplies and even an artist table for Christmas. I believe it was 1974. Mm-hmm. And I just started taking art, community art classes. And absolutely, 
it, something in me just came alive. And so I went back to school and I went to Center for Creative Studies for, I think, a year and a half or two years, um, mainly trying to learn how to draw. I was already winning awards with my watercolor paintings. Uh-huh. I had good sense of color and all, composition, all of that, but I couldn't draw. I couldn't draw people or anything. So I did a lot of life drawing and life sculpture and learning how to draw. And, and then I just felt, you know, all of my being, as I have a tendency to do, um, was then in the art world. And I was writing art reviews and I was teaching art and making art and being part of a cooperative gallery in a Greek town. And yeah, so, you know, that was when I found that I had all this artistic talent I didn't even know I had. Did you start photography about the same time? Nope. The photography only came later, quite a bit later. So I started with painting, sculpture, clay, multimedia, all those things um, from 1975 until, well, I was still doing it in 2000. Uh But in 2000, I started keeping an online a journal, daily journal, kind of like I do on Instagram, mm-hmm. but this was from my own website. And and uh, to coordinate with that, I got a little point-and-shoot camera that I could take photos to put up on my website with my journal entries. And I think after about, in 2006 then, it was 2006 I kept that, but then I decided, you know, I just want to really become a photographer. Uh-huh. So I got myself a good Canon camera, and um, I think I took one little six-week class on how to use a camera and, and just went on from there, yeah. Your photos were in Time Magazine. Well, yeah, I've had, I've had two books so far published by publishers. Um, the first one was um, uh, Falling Into Place. Uh-huh. And that is all self-portraits of living with a dis- my living with a disability. That ended up being published by a publisher in Wales. So I was even able to go to Belgium, actually. Nice. Uh, when we printed that, I was on, you know, uh, there for the printing of that. And, you know, and then the second one was in 2019, and that's the Grandma Techno book. Mm-hmm. And that was published here in Detroit. So, yeah. What? But I've I've had, yeah. My my work has gone all over the world. I've had solo exhibit in China, and it, it just things it yeah things grow one on another. It was amazing. And you were in Oprah's magazine as well. Yes, I was. Yep, <laughs> Oprah had an article. I I was one of twenty twenty seven women who were chosen by Instagram to have an exhibit. And they were starting a new um, initiative called My Story, Mm -hmm. where people would tell their stories. And so they had chosen women who had um, Instagram accounts that that they considered that kind of diaristic um, thing. And so, yeah, we we got together in Los Angeles for an exhibit at a gallery 2015. Mm -hmm. And, um, And Oprah got hold of it, and and she shows I think she I think the article was something like five women you should follow on Instagram. Wow. I was one of them. That's amazing. Yeah, so. That is amazing. Yeah, yeah, you know, as I say, you never know. I mean, if you're open to trying, 
different things and kind of following wherever your passion leads you, you have no idea what's going to happen. It's such an adventure. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, I, I started photography about a year ago and was so excited when a magazine published one of my photos. But see, that's how it starts. It isn't like it has to be big from the beginning. Yeah. But people see it and then someone else contacts you and blah, blah, blah. Just, you know, one thing leads to another. You, I, I would never, ever... I, and that's why I worry when you, a lot of young people talk about their five and ten year plans. Mm-hmm. All that stuff is like, forget that. <laughs> you know, just follow your passion, see where it leads you, and be willing to shift gears. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've had so many different chapters now. And every time I'm in the mad- middle of a chapter, I think, well, this is it. Here I am. But now I'm saying, no, I know that you this is just one of many chapters. Speaking about chapters, another chapter in your photography is the Blue Mirror Project. Can you give me some details on that? That project started right after I had um, finished taking pictures for my self-portrait book. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that book was published in 2013. So I, but I, I kind of had t- taken most of the pictures by 2009. And I was in New York to see my mentor, and we were going over an edit for the book and things like that. But I thought, you know, I need to be taking new pictures. And the picture that was on the cover, what ended up being on the cover of that book, was myself looking at the purse, at the camera uh, through my grandmother's um, uh, silver mirror. Mm-hmm. And I thought, you know, I wonder if I had people hold up a mirror and look not at themselves, but look at me, mm-hmm. what would happen? And so I bought like a plastic, a blue plastic mirror at CVS in Manhattan mm-hmm. for, um, oh, I don't know, $3 and something. And I started just, you had to have a lot of guts to do this, but I would just go up to strangers all over Manhattan. I think I ended up taking about 80 pictures mm-hmm. that next two days. You know, just asking them if they would hold the mirror and let me take a picture of them looking at me through the mirror. And and so they did. So I worked on that project from 20, let's see, 2009 to 2011. That Those pictures actually are on my website. Mm-hmm. My website is patricialaydorsey.com, all one word, L-A-Y, Patricia. Anyway, um, and so that's there. And the fellow who published my Grandma Techno book, Mm-hmm. Um, said to me, maybe, a, I don't know, a, a, about a year ago, that he was interested in maybe selling some prints from that project. He liked that project. So I went back and I looked at my photos. I thought, I like this project. I want to do it again. Mm-hmm. So I started doing it again. And so that's what I'm in the middle of now. Yeah. I'm, I'm taking these kind of pictures. Yeah, I see them on your Instagram where there's photos of kids, adults. Pretty much anyone you come across, uh, they're holding a mirror, looking back towards the camera. I, yeah, I, I love if them. people want to follow the Instagram, it's Patricia Lake Dorsey. That's that's my Instagram handle. Yes, definitely follow Patricia on Instagram. All her photos have excellent stories behind them as well. So, Grandma Techno, this is how I came to learn about you. In 2007, it was my was my third festival. Yeah, it was my third festival. I was trying to get from the, the stage area. It was right under the stage mm-hmm. um, to get to another. I wanted to get to another stage. Mm-hmm. 
and it was, the room was packed. And so I asked one of the um, security guards to please lead me out. Mm-hmm. So as I am following him in my scooter, someone yelled, just this voice from the back says, it's Grandma Techno, let her through. <laughs> you know, and so that was when the name came, and uh, it's just been ever since. How did you come to learn about the festival? I'd always, I love music, and I'd gone to all of the festivals, the three festivals in the city. This one, when I went to it, it was had only just started. I think we had to pay $40 the uh-huh. first year. Um, but that was 2005. Um, no, but my friend and I, we, this was the festival we'd never been to. Uh-huh. So we said to ourselves, let's try it. And we walked into Hart Plaza, and it was so loud uh-huh. that we had to leave. So we went to the Marriott um, gift shop and bought earplugs. Uh-huh. And so we could go back then. But I loved it because I still, even when I was in a scooter, I could stand at that point. I can't now, but I could stand beside my scooter and dance. And it now I can still dance sitting in my scooter. I can do mm-hmm. scooter dancing. But, um, yeah, I'd love to dance to the beat. Love it. Did you find the people at the festival friendly? Oh, my God. They are so adorable. <laughs> you know, that I mean, Grandma Techno became like a thing. Mm-hmm. And so that's another thing that I could never do social distancing. <laughs> but the festival, because everybody is in line to get their hugs and kisses from Grandma Techno. Yeah. Which I consider such a privilege and I love them so dearly. Yeah. But um, a lot of people I don't think kisses now, I think, would just be too risky for me. Yeah. I, I, but you know, the kids were always, the kids, I, I call everybody kids because I started going when I was in my 60s. Uh-huh. And at that time, I was the oldest. But there, I see more. When I was going, uh, 2019 was my last one. But I would see more older people coming. Now, let's start uh, wrapping up with the final questions here. What is the proudest moment of your life so far? What an interesting question. I've never asked myself that question. Um, now when I look back, when I look back, I really think it's the 19-day solitary demonstration mm-hmm. I did for Lebanon in Washington where I was, I was by myself. There were other people um, protesting, the, the pink ladies. Uh, there were other people protesting but I couldn't let them be with me because they always wanted to argue with people who disagreed with them. Right. And I refused to do that. So I just think, I would say if I were proud of something, it would be those 19 days in that demonstration. You know, thanks for the question. I wouldn't, I'd never ask myself that question. What's the key to having a long marriage? Don't try to understand each other. <laughs> <laughs> Don't try to communicate. I'm not kidding. I think you have to learn, at least I had to learn, I'll say that. I had to learn that we are two individuals. We are not going to agree on things. And there are going to be a lot of things. We have a long list of things we can't talk about. Mm-hmm. Long list. And I think just trying to be respectful. Um, and we don't, I don't even have to understand him, and he doesn't have to understand me. I think respect is the main thing. If you can respect the other person and and appreciate them and, you know, and just not try to turn them into something that you think they should be. Just let them be themselves. And, you know, if you need to go on about your business and do your own thing, do it. Do you have any regrets or things you wish you would have done differently? Mm-hmm. I do. I have some regrets. Not, not a lot. 
I have some. Um, they're just little small things where I wasn't as sensitive to someone as I could have been. Mm-hmm. And I look back and I think I wish I wish I had been different. Um, you know, it's I can't say I have any major regrets, but it's just kind of a way of of being with other people that sometimes I look back and I think I could have either kept, kept my mouth shut or I could have listened more. Mm-hmm. I think maybe that's the main thing. I wish I had listened better. I still do. I still wish I would listen better to people. And last question here. What advice would you give to someone in their teens or 20s? Hmm. Dare. Absolutely dare to, to do things so differently that you don't know what's going to happen. You know, I think so often we, we try to organize our lives and have things all according to our plans. But I would say be willing to go and jump off the cliff, whatever whatever the cliff is. I mean, as long as it's not something that's going to hurt you or anyone else, right. that, that's an important piece of it. But, you know, like like I dared to go to Lebanon by myself in my scooter, using, using my scooter. I couldn't even walk then. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, just the different, yeah, just, just be a daring person. Don't, 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 um, don't sell yourself too short, I guess I'd say. Okay. You know, we can do more than we even imagine. Patricia, this last hour has just zoomed by. It's been an honor speaking with you and learning about your life. Thanks so much for the memories. I thank you so much. Your questions have been marvelous. And honestly, from having done this with you, I know myself and my life better than I did before. Thanks for the memory of sentimental verse. Nothing in my purse. And chuckles when the preacher said, for better or for worse. Thank you so much.